everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're thrilled to have you, and we are thrilled via Skype to have uh, our friend Tim Mackey uh, back with us. Tim um, is uh, one of the founders, storytellers, the uh, theologians of the Bible Project, and Tim, we're thrilled to have you. Um, thank you so much for, for your time today. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Good to talk with you. Tim is located in Portland, mm-hmm. and you have been, I just want to make sure, you know, I get it all right. You've been a professor mm-hmm. um, at, what is it, was it Western? Where was it? West, Western Seminary. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And you were, you, you've been a pastor, a teaching pastor, right? Yep. At yep. a church for, what it was it, 10 years? Uh, well, at a church in Wisconsin for about three years, and then a church in Portland for uh, about five Okay, perfect. Yeah. And then you've now, uh, you helped mm-hmm. to launch uh, this thing called the Bible Project, which, mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what would you say? I mean, and I know you probably get asked this all the time, but what would you uh, yeah. say, what would you say the mission is of the Bible Project? Oh, well, what it is, is a nonprofit crowdfunded animation studio here in Portland. I love that. And we make uh, videos and other resources, but mainly short animated videos about the Bible and biblical theology and how to read the Bible in its historical context. And we're a YouTube channel Yep. that recently hit a million followers, which is mind-blowing to me. Holy cow. Are you, uh, do you get paid yet for advertising? No, we'll never do that. Okay. No way. Well, I don't know. What's great is that the crowd fund, it's just our viewers and what we're doing. And so we don't have to get money from the videos themselves. Oh, that's fantastic. Just, yeah, it's really an, an amazing ecosystem how it's all worked out. That's cool. Yeah. And so if I've tried my friend to keep up with you, oh. and it is simply, so you have you have the YouTube channel, yeah, and then you have a Q&A that you do with uh, John, mm. your, your mm. partner in crime, right? And, and is that mm-hmm. on the YouTube yeah, channel right. and a podcast? Oh. Uh, yeah, that's right. You know, we used to do live Q and A's with our viewers yeah. and uh, a bunch of those now live on, but mostly he and I, and, uh, all our research and conversation that gets put into the videos is captured in our podcast, the Bible okay. Project podcast. And we also interact with listener questions pretty often. Okay. Yeah. And then you have a personal podcast oh, that's yeah. relatively <laughs> new is that is that your strange yeah. your strange bible yes exploring my strange bible yeah you know it's actually someone on our team uh came to me and he used to say hey have you ever said or taught anything about this and i'd be like yeah it's on some church's website from a teaching yeah. i gave and so he <laughs> took it upon himself to just put a podcast together gathering every, everything i've ever done it's kind of terrifying oh wow <laughs> but he's just gathered it all and then it's uh, we, we're working together to release it weekly on a podcast. That's fantastic. So, and then you have right a website. Now, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. You got it. That all that you can, that's the kind of the portal into Tim Mackey world. I suppose. The gateway, <laughs> the gateway drive. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. All right, Tim, um, it, 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 a couple of just very important things. I just, I quickly need your take on. Okay. Um, Coors Light <laughs> is real beer. Uh, true or false? Oh, uh, biblically false, false, but I don't really have an opinion. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that, I, that I'm willing to invest in very much. I okay. don't think it tastes tastes good. If that's what you're asking, it does taste good. <laughs> I don't think it tastes good. Oh, 
All right, oh, so we're going to edit that part out and <laughs> and just have Tim saying yes. We'll we'll just capture one of your yeses somewhere along the way, and we'll put it in there. Um, uh, do you do you do you buy the Old Testament teaching that baldness is the sign of a prophet? Wow. Would you? Wow. Um, what do you think about sure. that? You know, when I'm talking with you, Mike, I I'm really compelled. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Now. One of the things, uh, Tim, that I love that you do and, and uh, a lot of our listeners enjoy is that you interact with a lot of Old Testament concepts, um, what we call the Hebrew scriptures, of course, um, and, um, and seek to kind of knit those together in some, some really fun ways. There, it, there seems to be, and I don't know if you, if you engage with this idea at all, but a lot of uh, people that I talk with and hear from are people who are kind of deconstructing their faith. And one of the reasons they're deconstructing their faith is mm-hmm. because of the Bible. Uh, it's mm-hmm. The Bible itself has become a stumbling block for many. Yep. And, um, and so, there, so there are a lot of different ways to approach that conversation, right? We can just say, well, the part of the Bible that offends you is the older part. And so that's not, that's not exactly relevant to us. So we yeah. can set that aside and we don't have to answer and reconcile the Old sure. Testament with the New Testament. Yeah. Um, you can just say, well, this is what's come to us. And so yeah. deal with it. And if it's yeah. and if you don't like it, that's more about you than it is about God. Um, or there are various attempts to, to kind of harmonize and reconcile some of what's presented in the Old Testament. Uh, the genocide, for instance, or, or the flood you know, narrative, is the flood narrative a literal thing? Adam and Eve, are they literal? And you can yeah. spend all your time trying to work out uh, those sorts of things. So I'd love to, love to get some of your thoughts hmm. on how it is that Christians who live under a new covenant are to engage uh, with that, what, you know, in our Bible is called the old covenant. So I just want to start with a really dumb, basic question. Uh, and one of my favorite Bible studies I ever did was with a group of policemen who've never, who had never opened a Bible. And so we, we spent the first hour and a half on the table of contents and like, why are the books called the, the way that they're, and why, why are they ordered yes, in this yes. way? But their big question is what's an old Testament and what's a new Testament and why, why do we have them? Yeah. So what, so what is, what is the old Testament, Mr. Mackey? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Why, um, and, and why are there two? And if the new one yeah, yeah, yeah. renders the old one obsolete, why are they in the same yeah. Bible? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, I have challenges being concise. That's why I have a worker in the Bible project. <laughs> he makes me he makes me be concise. Um, uh, and as short as I can think to say it on the fly, it would the Hebrew Bible is a unified collection of ancient that are telling one story about the meaning of human history, what's the purpose, what's the problem, what's the solution. And within that universal human story, it's the story of one particular family that claims to be God's like conduit through which he's in the world. Right. And that story um, paints the human condition in such bleak terms. <laughs> Uh, and True. brings you to a point of total destruct self humans at self destruction and self imposed exile, but the whole story is about how God keeps promising to rescue and to save, bring about resurrection life and new creation. 
And you at the doorstep with all of those uh, problems put before you but not resolved. And uh, when Jesus walks onto the scene, he's picking up every single element. Everything Jesus says and does is corresponding to the problems diagnosed in the Hebrew Bible. And the solutions that he's bringing to the human story are precisely the solutions that were anticipated in the first in the Old Testament itself. But but for I think a lot of people, first of all, that was really concise and and well said. I think for a lot of people, though, what they find in the Hebrew Bible actually causes them yeah. to doubt. So totally. the, the God that, that commits genocide, the the God yeah. that seems very angry and flippant, uh, the God yeah. that promises to destroy. Uh, and exile the nation if they, you know, break the covenant. And it seems, yeah. and none of this is new, of course. And it yeah. seems so at odds with the love your enemy, kind of bless those who persecute you vibe of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so when you, when you talk about the Old Testament, yeah. um, and, and so I want to, I want to talk about the negative part of it first, if, if you don't mind. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. How have you, uh, so unified story pointing to Jesus. I've heard you talk about that before. But mm-hmm. how do you how do you how do you approach some of these very difficult issues? And we don't have to go specifically through them. But but mm-hmm. w- what's been the general approach? Because it seems like um, mm-hmm. through the Bible Project, you're you're not shying away from them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also you're also not you know you're also not advocating just the wholesale throwing away of that mm-hmm. section of scripture. So, so how, how does that work for you personally? Yeah, well, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It <laughs> and is. that's the first thing to anybody who is proposing simple solutions to how followers of Jesus should engage the Bible is not, is not being honest with okay. the reality of these texts and what it means to read them in, in our time period. In a number of ways, and so um, I know you just you want to talk about the Old Testament. No, no, but you can't, can't, talk, can't talk about it. The same sets of issues uh, stand with modern Westerners, modern people reading even the New Testament, the stories about Jesus, because the Jesus that that modern people tend to love is itself a Jesus who's been kind of cut and pasted out of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have the radical, like, love your neighbor, servant to the poor, good news. You know what I mean? There's that Jesus, and he, he sells great, you know? Yeah, um, but especially then in Portland. Also, totally, totally. Um, alongside that Jesus are, is the Jesus who has really, a, like, a sky-high sexual ethic. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and sky-high critique of what... Uh, the the uh, the wealth of food and resources available to even middle class Americans, Jesus would be extremely vicious yeah. of what it's doing to our souls. And so the Jesus that you know we want that we're, it's attractive to us, he's as complex as the Hebrew scriptures are in terms of having positive and negative sides. Jesus talks about hell more than any other person in the New Testament. Right. It's just to say that when we say we love Jesus and aren't hanging with so much of the, this negativity in the Old Testament. Usually for me, when I feel that way, that's a sign that I'm not reckoning with the whole portrait of Jesus that the apostles give us in the New yeah. Testament. So the second thought, I mean, without going into detail about 
individual challenging stories in the Hebrew scriptures, right. of which there are so many. <laughs> <laughs> like talk, go with the talking snake, right? Or yeah. floods, or <laughs> um, all of the sex scandals and the violence. Oh and my goodness, yeah. The really horrible people that God is committed to and uses, all this kind of stuff. Okay, And, and that God seems horrible too sometimes. That's it, totally. Exactly right. So, uh, um. And all I can say is after 20 years of experience of really trying to dedicate myself to to check my assumptions and my modern misconceptions at the door and read these texts sympathetically on their own terms, usually it's usually the realm is in my either I have simply a misunderstanding of the literary context. I'm not reading the story along the contours of its design. And so I'm missing key points of what the story is about. Half the time, that's what's going on. Okay. And so the thing that I would disagree with in the story is actually the thing that the author himself is disagreeing with. And that's why he's telling us the story. Really? We often, yeah, we often mistake all the sex scandals and violence in the Old Testament um, as somehow, if not endorsing it, at least excusing it. You yeah. know, like, yep. hey, David, you know, God chooses him as king. So he can sleep with other men's wives and murder them and still get to be king and so right, on. Right. And so we think that's so screwed up. Dude, the whole point of that narrative is to show you how David is slowly killing himself and everyone around him. That's the whole point. It's exposing the human condition. Oh. And so, and so usually it's about me readjusting my expectations of what the narrative is actually trying to say. So that's one. Yep. Another, another one is that these are ancient texts. And so they come from a language and a culture that are addressing issues that were extremely, not, not just relevant, but they were common sense in the author's day. And that we simply lack that cultural context anymore. To, and the flood is a wonderful example. Okay, how um, so? Um, so? So the flood. Um, so the, the author of Genesis is participating in a very ancient conversation about floods in the ancient world. <laughs> um, so, and this is actually, the reason why it's a good example is because it's, it's fairly popular knowledge that there are other ancient yeah. Babylonian flood, flood stories and so on. Um, some of them read uh, very similarly to the biblical flood story, right down to the details. Hmm. So what that tells us is the biblical author is offering a, a um, an Israelite, Yahweh interpretation of this larger cultural narrative that's going on. Um, the dominant narrative, you can go read it in multiple versions. Just Google it, and you can go read these ancient uh, these ancient tablets in English translation. Hmm. Um, there's there were multiple versions. The, the main one was that um, the chief gods over the world um, have a bunch of servant gods under them. They're called the Igigi. I like their name, the Igigi, an <laughs> <laughs> uh, ancient Akkadian. And, um, and so the Igigi get tired of like providing food and, you know, building roads and buildings for the gods. And so um, they get this idea, they, let's um, find, let's make a slave class that will serve us and the, the higher class gods. Ooh. And so um, they slit the throat of one of their own gods and pour his blood out into the dirt and they mold humans. It's very oh. similar. It's very similar. It has similarities with the Genesis 2 story of God forming humans out of the, out of the dirt. dirt. Yep. 
Instead, they're formed out of the blood of a slain god so that they can create a slave class. And then once they create the slave class, they have humans. Now, humans, the purpose of humans in the universe in this way of telling the story is they're slaves to the gods. Mm. Um, but then it turns out the humans multiply like rabbits. <laughs> yes. And they make a lot of noise and mess that annoy all the gods <laughs> who, who created them out of the. And so the gods get fed up. And they um, decide they're going to wipe out the humans because of their noise and their mess. They're going to wipe them all out in a catastrophic flood. Yikes. Um, and, and so uh, they do, but uh, the gods select one guy named Utnapishtim, and they, he builds a boat. I mean, right down to the details. Oh, He's wow. waiting in the waters. He sends out birds to find out. Oh, come on. Of- oh, totally. Yeah, totally. So, so here's what the biblical author's doing. He's, he's telling that story, but the way that he's framed the introduction to it and the point that the flood story makes in the biblical version is radically subversive to that dominant cultural narrative. Because in the biblical story, humans are created to be kings and queens of creation right, right. under the God whom they image, but not as his slaves, as his kings and queens. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and the reason for God bringing the flood is, is complicated with a whole other thing we won't get into, but it's, be, it's actually because of widespread corruption uh, the and Nephilim. Social, Come on, the Nephilim. the Nephilim. One problem at a time. <laughs> but, uh, actually, but that's fascinating. And that's a, it's another. It is. It's a very similar example to what I'm talking about right now. That's good. Um, but, but the point is that the reason. Um, why the flood comes is because of widespread violence, injustice, and moral corruption. Um, and so the flood becomes a means of God purifying his world from what evil has done to it, precisely so that he can build a new creation. And actually, here's what's in, this is another detail. Come on. This is something readers don't notice. The reason God says he's going to bring the flood, unlike the Babylonian version, because we just don't like the humans, they're noisy and messy, God says it's because the heart of humanity is set on selfishness and evil all of the time. It's Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. That's the intro of the flood. Flood comes. God rescues one through whom he's going to rebuild a new humanity. So that Noah gets off the boat. He gets off the boat. And he offers a sacrifice of yep. Thanksgiving. And the first thing God says is, you know what I know about humans? Their hearts <laughs> are selfish and set on evil all of the time. And as a reader, you're going like, oh, no. Oh, no, this is terrible. Yeah, <laughs> this is, It's just going to be floods continually, I guess, for the rest of the story. And what God says is, therefore, I'm never going to do that again. Mm. Rather... There's going to be, it's a beautiful little poem about sun and sun, like light and dark, yeah. months and season, cold and summer. In other words, so the biblical portrait is offering a contrast portrait to the way their neighbors think, Babylonian neighbors think about the gods. The, the biblical flood story is telling us that while God has it within his prerogative, right, to yep. bring ultimate justice on human evil and corruption, he's chosen not to do that as his long game plan. Hmm. Rather, he's going to allow really screwed up humans (laughs) to do terrible things to each other, and he's going to be patient with it so that he can rescue them in the long game. And so so that, okay, so I I told you I have a hard time being concise. No, bro, this this is great. 
This goes to the third thing that I've really been learning about how the Hebrew Bible works. Is after that, God has committed himself to not bringing on humanity what it deserves. That's the choice God makes in Genesis 9. Mm. And that's a choice he continues to make. Because he's made a covenant promise to rescue and redeem and bless, and not to destroy. Right, not to do what he could do, which is bringing the flood. Um, what you find from then that point on is God commits Himself to what we call suboptimal decisions. <laughs> <laughs> I do this with parenting all the time. Yes, totally. Yeah, and it's just—it's exactly parenting. It's just saying, "Listen, I'm telling you not to do this, not to do." Oh, you did it. Right now that you've done it. We're not in the world that we were five minutes ago. We're in the world of now. Yeah. And what I have to do is adjust my strategy, adjust what I'm doing. So this happens with all kinds of things um, in, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and violence and, and sex scandals are perfect examples. You know, you have, you have a monogamous marriage covenant on page one. Yeah. But then you have all of this, this poly- polygamous marriages throughout the rest of the Bible. And yeah. many people mistake that as if that that's the Bible endorsing that. Right. That's a biblical go, marriage. Go read every one of those stories. It results in ruin. Mm. The narrative argument about all of those marriages is, yeah, this is a really bad idea. And every time, right, every time people do it, it results in fracture in the family and division, and it's not good. But God still works in and through that corruption in his plan. Now, is that and, different than accommodation? Oh, or is, uh, is that what accommodation is? Oh, yeah, yeah. at least at this moment, I, I think that that's, a, that's another fine, fine word for it. Okay. But this idea of suboptimal, God is willing to work in and through something that's not his ideal, um, is a pattern you see. The whole kingship, the, the whole advent of monarchy and kingship in yeah. Israel is a great example of this. It's not what he wants. The whole point is that humans rule beside each other as kings and queens of creation, right? And not humans ruling over one another, and and that's a corruption in in the divine plan. But it's what humans want, and so he gives them over to it. So to speak. how does the conquest narrative fit into that overall yeah, trajectory? Yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. And we don't and we don't have to get super specific, but yes. but I think this is the the argument you're making is is I think pretty interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's huge. So I think there's two two layers to this. Um, one is the accommodation perspective, which I really think gets us a lot of mileage when it comes to the whole holy war and um, people, the Israelites, battling in God's name. You know, when they go in, into the promised land. So one is, of course, the advent of violence is a it's a human corruption <laughs> within right. the story of the Bible. Right. And once God commits himself to saving and redeeming violent humans, it means he's going to put up with violent humans. And and scandalously enough, he's actually going to um you know some people call this a, like a form of divine aikido. <laughs> yes. In the, in the Bible where it's he can use violent humans towards his ultimate redemptive purposes and the story of Joseph's brother is a wonderful example mm. where they're fully like responsible for their evil, um, but God is able to work it into his divine plan. Where yeah. it's different in the book of Joshua is that God is commissioning yeah. these acts, acts of war against a select people group, not everybody, 
Actually, they're supposed to pursue peace with almost everybody, except for this handful of nations in the land. Okay, this is actually where um, the Nephilim come into story. Come on, come on. Uh, here's the thing. If you had asked me a year ago, I would have said everything I'm about to say, I would be like, oh, I don't know. But all I can say is reality stranger than perhaps we often think it is. And the Bible is stranger than we think it is. And we already think it's strange, right? Amen. So, uh, okay. Are you with me? Go down I'm with you. Hole, at least for a few minutes. I, this I, is going to sound crazy. Everything no, I'm about to say is going to sound crazy. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Okay, it, not right, if you're right. not if you're getting into divine counsel, Elohim. Yeah, all that stuff. yeah totally. Yeah, all that's right. not no, that's not crazy. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, let's go back to before the flood. The story. There's a story right before the flood about spiritual beings. Yes, are God's God's partners in uh, ruling the heavens. They're called the sons of God. They're called the hosts of heaven. They're called all kinds of things. They're called the hosts of heaven in Genesis one. Yep. Um, and just like God has human partners to rule on the land, he has spiritual heavenly partners to rule in the heavens. Um, this is concept number one. Concept number two, this, um, in gen- page six of Genesis, some of these spiritual beings don't like God's way of running the world. Uh, they apparently don't like that God has taken away uh, from corrupt, violent humans the chance to have eternal life. And so they try to restore eternal life to humans by rebelling against God, and they go have sex with women. That's what Genesis 6 says. <laughs> yep. <laughs> okay. Yep. So that's crazy. Just like the flood story is crazy. Right. But once again, the author of Genesis, he's tapping into a storyline that is active and a live current. It's a live, it's a trending Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And Babylon. Yeah, because the these idea. are these aren't random, like Nephilim no, 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 mentioned no, no, no. other places. Totally. So the the concept of the gods impregnating women to birth the great warrior giant kings of old. This is a very common motif. It's actually what the Babylonian kings claim about the origin of Babylon itself. Hmm. Um, these ancient empires, their most famous king. Again, go. Like Google uh, Gilgamesh, <laughs> the Gilgamesh epic. Um, Gilgamesh was one of these ancient, ancient Babylonian kings, and he's uh, two thirds divine, one third human because yeah. of his divine, his divine parentage. He was a huge. He's talked about as a huge guy, and he's one of the founders of the Babylonian Empire. Mm-hmm. And so again, while while Israel's neighbors are praising and exalting these giant divine human foundation figures, the biblical authors want us to see when, 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 now think about this, Mike, Yeah. when empires claim that they are a both human and divine creation and exalt their, the origins of their culture and empire, give it a divine stamp, a divine birth story um, as a way to legitimate their economic and military policies. Are you with me? Yeah. Like this is not a new story. (laughs) Do you know, do you know how many times I've heard, are you with me on the podcast? (laughs) And it's great to get one in person. So yes, dude, I'm so with you. Yeah. So I get it. We're like weirded out about the whole thing about giants and the Nephilim and the Bible, but we need to understand that these stories are the vehicle of a message, a theological message 
And we can debate about historicity and how these things refer to events in history. I'm, I'm fine with that. Let's debate till we're blue in the face. But let's not miss the, the messages that these authors are trying to get across to us about the human condition. So let me, and, let me ask, let me interrupt yeah. you one second, Tim, because yeah. this is phenomenal. Because I was, I, I wrote down just as you were speaking, I said, okay, so is it proper? And, and yes, of course it is in one sense, but I'd love your take on just the, the kind of blunt question. Is it appropriate for us to go to the flood story and say, hey, what is that true? Or is the better question, what is the, why is this included and what is it trying to say? Right. Yeah. I, um, the truth question is important. I actually don't think it's as important in that kind of narrative as what is its claim? What, what is the theological message and claim of that story? Because once you get that, I think it shapes what kind of thing you're looking for when you ask, is it true? No, see, no, that's so good. Now, let, let's talk, let's spend a moment on that because this is, okay. Tim, this yeah. is so good. good. So, Great. so when I say, <laughs> when I come to the flood story and say, is it true? Mm-hmm. What I'm meaning as a modern Western American is, yeah. does this description match history in yeah. a way that makes the Bible credit credible for right. the things I can't prove? Correct. From yeah. It? Yeah, got it. So, what, I, so, yeah. so take that, and 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 so, how does knowing what you've just shared about the purpose of the flood story, how does that shape then that question mm-hmm. into something the Bible is answer actually seeking yeah. to answer? Yeah. Well, what what we're asking, we say, is it true? Meaning, does it have a historical referent that I can prove its reliability? That the narrative has a one for one representation to what it refers to in terms of historical events. Right. However, if you think about it, not all kinds of literature is shaped to refer to things that happened in the same way. The relationship between a literary text and the thing that happened, those can have very different kinds of relationships. Um, an example I often use is the story, when my wife and I tell the story to someone we're meeting about the story of how we met, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll condense a year and a half of history (laughs) and many events we will collapse into single moments in the story right our first conversation our second conversation will often merge in the retelling and if someone is to point out and say no wait i was there those were two different conversations i'm like okay yeah but in this moment and in this context the type of communication i'm giving is that of i'm helping you understand the meaning and the general flow of events got it so I think it's all about, we often impose on the biblical authors our modern expectations about what a historical text is. Right. And what we need to do is adjust our expectations to what did the biblical author think the kind of narrative he was forming here. He's forming a narrative where the kind of event he's telling about is an event that's a viral Twitter feed in his day. Right. And what he's trying to do is take a dominant cultural narrative. Of course, there were floods in the ancient world. Of course there were. <laughs> yeah. Um, were they uh, universal and global? Okay, let's have that debate about how apocalyptic language works in the Bible, and yeah. this, this kind of thing. Um, but of course there were catastrophic floods in human history. Of course there were, <laughs> and there still are. Yeah. And what he's doing is taking a dominant cultural narrative and making theological claims undermining the dominant 
form of that narrative. That should determine what we're looking for, I think, when we ask about history. And, and here's what people get twitchy, maybe I can anticipate, is people might get twitchy because yep. they import that and they say, oh, well, if you do that with the New Testament and with the resurrection, well, then you can just make it whatever you want. Well, no, no, stop. Those are very different kinds of narratives. Hmm. <laughs> like the Genesis author is very clearly tapping into an ancient viral Twitter feed. Um, that's ancient, I think, even to the author. The New Testament is offering us eyewitness testimony of people who experience things. And they're actually telling us that the legitimacy of the testimony is anchored in the details and the things that they saw. It's a very different kind of narrative than the flood narrative. So we need to respect, I think, that there are even different types of narrative in the Bible that refer to history in different kinds of ways. And it's we're loving our neighbor as ourselves. We're honoring these authors <laughs> yeah. and respecting their purposes and not imposing our, our purposes on them. And I'm not saying this solves that in the flesh. Right. But, but uh, for me, I just have to keep coming back to these principles of interpretation as, as I work with the Hebrew Scriptures. No, that's really, really good. In what so, – so some would say, the classic some would say, um, uh, the Old Testament is great for an example – Right. It, yes. Like, here's yeah. what not to do, or yeah, in, yeah, some, yeah, yeah. in some cases, here's you know beautiful examples of faith in Daniel and and um, and Rahab and whoever else. But yeah. but it, but it's not in any way, shape, or form applicable to us because we're under a new covenant, and hmm. the new covenant has rendered the old one obsolete, mm-hmm. according to the mm-hmm. writer of Hebrews. Yes. Yep. So why do any of that work? Um, yeah. when you could simply say, well, that's, that was for them. That was for Israel. Uh, none of that, none of that's for me. Jesus, man, New Testament's for me. That's my Testament. Old Testament, nothing to it. Yeah, totally. Well, I, a short answer to that is the Old Testament isn't the Old Covenant. Oh, now, come on. Come on. <laughs> Someone's going to preach right now. Let's go. Oh, well, no, it's just, it's, it's actually very simple. <laughs> But that that whole mindset is based on an unexamined assumption that the thing that we call the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, is itself a record promoting and endorsing the Old Covenant that God made with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But it is so clearly not doing that. Okay. It's It's problematizing that Old Covenant and saying it didn't work. In fact, it cannot work. And the only thing that'll ever make it work is when we get a new covenant around here. And this is what Moses says. It's what Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah all say. It's a new covenant document. The Old Testament is a new covenant document. Oh my um, goodness! Well, just read it. You're blowing <laughs> my. You're blowing my mind. Yeah. Well, I don't, yeah. I'm, no. Okay. And I, where the reason why that takes the reason why it took me so many years to figure that out yeah. is because I wasn't raised. People, people didn't encounter the Hebrew Scriptures the way that we do at all today. Correct. Um, and the, these texts were produced in, and the, Jesus and the apostles were raised to read them within a living tradition where you grow up memorizing, reading, singing, praying these texts from your earliest memories. And so, um, and they didn't encounter them even in a nice single-bound volume. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You encounter them in the songs of your mom from your yeah. childhood. Yep. And you encounter them from your your uncle 
reciting, you know, the poetry of Isaiah in synagogue every Friday night. And that's how it fills your mind. And for Jesus and the apostles, look at how they weave the, the words and ideas of the Hebrew scriptures into everything they're doing. What, for them, the Hebrew, Hebrew scriptures define reality. Right. They define reality. And it's the reality that they see themselves fulfilling and being a part of. But doesn't, but doesn't, and again, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate, doesn't Jesus yeah. set that aside with his, but I tell you statements in Matthew? Uh, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, t- totally. But once again, we're to that God committing himself to suboptimal. <laughs> okay, what's sub-optimal. that mean? What it means is that the laws in the Old Testament, in the narrative flow, in the narrative argument, of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the laws given to the Israelites at Mount Sinai are not the perfect ideal expression of God's will for humanity. Come on. They're not. They're so clearly not. Right. Um, what they are is God accommodating to Israel's corruption, to their, um, to their fear of him. He invited them all to come up the mountain, and yeah. they don't go. Only so, Moses goes. Yeah. And so all of the laws, and notice, the laws don't all come in one block. The laws come in many blocks of, of laws, and in between all those blocks are narratives of rebellion and idolatry and sex scandals. <laughs> come on. And so the whole strategy of the Torah is to tell you that these laws— represent God's damage control on Israel's fallenness. And what we really, this is what Moses says in Numbers chapter 11. He says, what we really need is God's spirit. That's what he says. He says, I wish, I wish God's spirit would come on all these people. Instead, it just, are you with me? Dude. It's, it's the new covenant. So the whole argument of the Torah is that what God's people need are not laws. What they need is a renewal of the human heart. Remember the flood story? Yeah. What they need is a renewal of the human heart what Moses calls the circumcision of the heart in Deuteronomy 30, um, and, a, and a full recreation of the human constitution, Ezekiel, and, and so yep. on. And, yep. and what's, that's what Jesus claims to be bringing into, into reality. So again, what, what he's critiquing is either modern misconceptions, not modern, modern to him, contemporary misconceptions of the Torah, yep. or he's just fully resonating with Moses and, and the prophets themselves. In other words, Ezekiel and Moses would agree with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. What, then then how is the Old Covenant obsolete? Oh. In what what's, sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's obsolete, according to the author of the Hebrews, is the actual liturgy and rituals taking place in the temple itself. What's not obsolete for him is the literary document that we call the Hebrew Bible. Ooh. That's very very much a, a living it's living and active according to him then how is it how is it binding on us so oh, so for, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah that's right yeah, yeah yeah i mean so you'll you'll have i'll have sabbath conversations with people and they're like well it's in the in the big 10 um, yeah, totally. or, or they'll import uh tithing promises given to israel sure, sure. you yeah. know all of the stuff you would be familiar yeah. with so so yeah well yeah but we're back to context 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 where do those commands come they are given to the israelites as they stand at the foot of mount sinai and they articulate something about god's will of course they do but do they articulate the perfect and ultimate expression of god's will and sabbath is a good one because sat Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, is not the first time you've heard about Sabbath. Right. You heard about Sabbath on page one. For yeah, this no, I, absolutely. And what you know about Sabbath on page one is that in, this, in the seven-day scheme of Genesis, every day ends with, and there is evening and morning, 
first day. There was the evening, the morning, the second day. You get right on down the line to the seventh day, which has no end. The seventh day has no evening ending the day. Yeah. And then you move on to the next narrative. So what Genesis 1 is giving you a portrait of God's ideal purpose of, of humans, male and female, ruling creation together as God's image, um, on into the new Sabbath. The next mm. Sabbath that is to come, but is not yet. Is it going to come? Turn to page two. Oh, yeah. The ultimate <laughs> Sabbath. Definitely did come. Yeah. We are not in the new Sabbath. Clearly. You, so from page one, you're waiting for the ultimate Sabbath. And so he asked the Israelites to weekly celebrate the hope of the ultimate Sabbath. And, and, then, and then Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, he goes into the synagogue and he opens Isaiah chapter 61 and yep. he says, the ultimate Jubilee Sabbath is here and I start it today. And then he goes about doing his, dude, yeah. there you go. Come on. It's, I mean, it's like hand to glove, man. The way are you, he's, listen, Tim, the way are you with me? <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's hand to glove. It's a, it's a change of perspective. Uh, think of, think of it this, I've had this experience so many times now with the Bible where I, it was act, I was blind to what's sitting in front of me because I was asking the wrong questions and right. I was looking for the wrong things. Yes. And in our modern context, we simply are not trained in our churches or in half of our seminaries to actually read these texts the way they're designed to be read. Right. We're trained to do, trained to do theological sparring with them. We're trained to teach them like dictionaries. Yeah. So we, you know, I can write my doctrine handbook. We're trained to read them as <laughs> historical apologetic texts. And nope. what we never actually do is learn to read them the way Jesus and the apostles read these texts. Yeah, we read our Bibles very flatly. And yeah. and so, like, well, Old Testament's in the Bible, so I can say the Bible says. Yeah, that's and, right. And, um, and so there are people reacting to that, saying, no, no, no. I mean, we don't live under the Old Covenant. We live under the New Covenant. So, so when, and I don't want to get into this topic, so this isn't a topical question as <laughs> so much as, it, it well, as much <laughs> as it is a, a kind of a hermeneutical question. Hmm. So how appropriate is it when, if people are going to make the case for traditional marriage that you reach into Leviticus um, hmm. or to Genesis 19 mm-hmm. and you say, well, Hey, here, here are commandments um, about uh, homosexuality homosexual yeah. activity, whatever. Uh, and, and, they, and they make an argument. And, th- and then the easy sure. counter to that is, well, yeah, but you eat lobster. So obviously yeah, Leviticus yeah. doesn't apply. So, yeah. um, so my question is, when, when, when debates are happening around New Testament ethics mm-hmm. and how to implement those and Old Testament passages are pulled in, to what degree is that appropriate or not appropriate? Or is it all yeah. contextual? Yeah, um, I think if you're going to bring in anything other than Genesis 1, <laughs> uh, you need to qualify it by the role that that story or law plays in its immediate and larger context. Okay. Um, and Because look, when Jesus is approached about marriage and divorce issues. Yeah, he mentioned goes um, Genesis and, 2. And, and when Paul is, they both. Go and Jesus and Paul learned from Jesus. You you just go right back to the statement of the ideal on pages one and two, because um, everything else in the Hebrew Bible is going to be giving you diminished <laughs> versions of the ideal that God continues to work with because He loves people and He works with them even in, in the midst of their violence and corruption. But He He accommodates to them. So and could so, you could you say? Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. 
It's okay. No, it's good. But but this is so Tim. Like this yeah. is so good, man. Right. Well, is it, <laughs> is it? Is it? Could you take? Could you play the accommodation card too much? In, in the following respect, um, sure. you, you get to divorce, and and Jesus says, "Well, it was because of your hardness of heart. Yeah, it was yeah. not always that way." And you realize, "Oh, well, there there's a divine accommodation." Yeah. So couldn't you argue, let's let's say uh, somebody who is same-sex attracted, couldn't you say, well, yeah, of course, it's not the ideal, mm-hmm. but here we are. Isn't, isn't being married better than not being married? And isn't being married with my partner and I following Jesus better than my partner and I not following Jesus? Uh, can't, you, can't you make an argument like that? Yeah, you could. Of course you could. Uh, and people do. Um and uh, to be honest, I just I am not up to current speed on that particular way of framing the debate. And yep. so I almost want to just there, there's things I haven't thought through yet that I want to think through. Then about don't making, then, then don't get into it. I yeah. was the, the, yeah, I was but just that, but using that's a really good observation. That's a really well, good point. Mike. Well, I was just trying to to say um, because obviously you know. God accommodated Peter for 10 years after the resurrection yeah. until yeah. Cornelius shows up at his door and, and Peter's yeah. like, oh yeah, oh, now I realize. Oh, even though Jesus had said. And and, and, um, and so so part of, I think the very sophisticated arguments um, around that, and, I don't, and again, I'm using the specific to just talk about the general principle. So don't, yep. that's right. that's and, right. and that's totally fair to not want to engage in the specifics. But but what boundaries, if anything, the the principle of divine accommodation? Hmm. Um, yeah, that's a great point, Mike. And uh, are you is, with yeah, me? I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. But I feel like what we're also talking about is the what we're talking about is God in His patience and mercy, putting deal, uh, dealing with <laughs> humans as they are. Yep, and. What else is the story of the Hebrew Bible and of Jesus and the disciples? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, except, except that. And Paul however, and his churches. That's right. H- however, that mercy doesn't prevent God from really saying and acting in moments where he does bring his ideal and he brings a principle of justice to hold people accountable yeah. according to the ideal, yep. not just the accommodation. And right. So, Yep. How that works out, I, I'm still under construction. I might be for a long time. But, but that is that is a, it, a good it, pastoral point you're raising. Well, in summary, that is, I think, the most important pastoral issue mm-hmm. being wrestled with in the church. That that question, the way are you articulated it? Because I mean, I uh, one of my dear friends, a guy named Don Williams, is a he studied under William Davies. He was a Pauline scholar. Mm-hmm. We were talking about divorce and remarriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know the the technical arguments around that issue are immense. Yeah. Yeah. But at, at one point he just said, you know, because because I, I was trying to press him on, um, well then sh- are, should you ask people who've remarried inappropriately to get divorced, yeah, uh, and yeah. live in their singleness or to live in their or or yeah. to you know repair whatever with their previous spouse? Yes. And he said, no, I would never do that. And 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 I said, well, why is that? Of course, and and he said, well, I just don't, I don't think the gospel would require the destruction of a new family. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I I've thought about that. Now he he said it way better and and much more nuanced. But I've thought about that issue. I, I think Tim, 
you're identifying like the specific, the, the crux of how the church responds to the LGBTQ community. As an example of the much bigger point, well, look at what we've done with divorce. Now, now divorce isn't even really a, a deal. We've just kind of, the church has accommodated to that. Um, and so I find it, I find it absolutely fascinating when Old Testament concepts get pulled in because it, it does seem like a violation. Yep. Um, yeah, right. so, so, so when we, when we go, why should we go into the old Testament? Uh, I, let me just say it that way. The Hebrew scriptures, what, what, what is there for us? Um, cause when I get asked that, I mean, one of the things is we well, can't understand Jesus without it, right? You just can't, you can't make sense of, of what Jesus, so whatever picture you have of Jesus, if it's not colored by the old Testament, um, it's not an accurate picture of Jesus. So, so, so how do you, how do you begin to answer those sorts of things? Uh, yeah, I affirm that. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I think it's, uh, of course, of course you can choose just to only read the gospels. This is what many people do. They just read the gospels, maybe only parts of it. And they don't right. like to read Paul. He bothers them about as much as the old Testament. And so <laughs> you know, what are you left with? You're left with the gospels and like John. Um, in the letters of John. I don't know. So you, you can remake your own Bible, but in which case, I think it's just good to be honest to just say, I, I think what I'm actually following is a, ver- a remake of Jesus. And I should just at least acknowledge that if that's yeah. the version of Christianity, whether or not that's right or wrong, that's a, we can have that conversation, but just to be honest, yeah, like I'm not on board with the actual deal. Uh, I want to remake of it. Yeah. Uh, if I care about actually being faithful to what Jesus himself would have wanted me to be if as one of his followers. Okay. Then we're, we can work with that and just say, I'm not going to track fully with how Jesus talks with what he's talking about, (laughs) with why he does the things that he does and why and how all the apostles say what anything that they say about Jesus, none of it will be that comprehensible apart from how it's rooted and connected to the storyline that, that's in the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. Can you just read the Gospel of John and be like, Jesus is awesome. He has power over terrible things and death. He died for me and he loves me. And my future is secure. Yes, totally. And if, if you want to keep your Christianity that substantial or that shallow, <laughs> whatever. I mean, there's nothing shallow there, but if you want to keep it at that level— that's okay, but um, I don't think the Bible's ever, and Christian faith, I don't think is going to be as profound and robust a resource as it can be in this world hmm. if we don't take that deeper dive. The, the Bible's offering such a sophisticated portrait of God, such a sophisticated portrait of human nature and the human condition, and the answers that it gives us, I think, to our most pressing questions of religion and politics— and identity, and sex, and religious violence, the Bible has so much wisdom to offer, but we have to, like, it's like we're going to France, if you're an American, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Pick up a phrase book, learn how they talk about things in that culture, and, and begin to sympathetically get into the shoes of another culture, and don't do it alone. Like, find the Bible nerds in your church community, and find a friend, um, and get some commentaries or get a Bible dictionary and just begin the journey. And I think 
once you're in touch with the real thing that the Bible's trying to do, it's just mind blowing. I just, I'm, my mind's blown every day. I can't <laughs> believe that these texts are saying the thing this, that they're saying. And I just, so there you go. I know that's all very big picture. But oh, I, no, 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 it's so good. I, I, yeah. And if yeah, you're wondering, I I, if you're wondering ahead. what a Bible um, nerd sounds like, you just, you <laughs> just heard it. <laughs> but you're one too, Mike. There are I am. Bible, Bible nerds, it's not about degrees, and it's not about um, expertise as such. It's just about an open-mindedness to read these texts and be open to being surprised yeah. um, about the things that they're saying. And a commitment to lifelong learning. Um, but yeah. that's the only way to be, in, in my opinion. <laughs> oh, amen. All right. Can I ask uh, one more question of you, Tim? <laughs> Thank you for your time. This is so, so good. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so I often interact with people who are deconstructing their faith. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, who just, for whatever reason, I, I can't buy literal Adam and Eve. Uh, I think creation or I think evolution is true. So I have to reject Genesis, um, you know, uh, whatever it is. And my, sure. my typical response, and I just want, I want your reaction or expanding or pushback on this, because what I say at those points is, listen, my faith doesn't rest on whether or not Moses wrote the Pentateuch or whether or not um, the flood was local, global, or didn't happen. My faith rests on an event, the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and, and and I try to uh, to redirect towards what what's most foundational, the way Paul seems to have in uh, in First mm-hmm. Corinthians. Um, is that in mm. your mind? Is that an appropriate way to answer? Mm. Um, my current strategy is to say, man, that's a really important conversation. The Adam and Eve, or the historicity of this or that event in the Bible. My current strategy is to say. Um, but at this moment, I'm just going to ask you to check that at the door okay? and just start reading these texts um, and try to understand what they are communicating on their own terms through their own communication strategies. And what I find personally and what I find in classroom settings is that when we encounter the brilliant, brilliant mind that we're meeting in these texts, which I think is both a divine and human mind <laughs> merged right. together. Right. Um, I find that those questions begin to lose their importance. Um, they're still important, but they don't have the importance that they first had. Once I see what the narratives, what, this, what these texts themselves are, are talking about, it just changes. It's just like we said with the flood. Once I see what the argument is of that story, it changes the history question altogether. And it's still important, but I find that it's not as important. Um, and I know that I know that some people will be dissatisfied with that strategy because <laughs> they think I'm minimizing history or that I'm minimizing the importance that the scriptures are faithful and true. And I, all I can say, I don't think that I am. I'm just trying to read these texts the way Jesus and the apostles read them. And, say, and Jews around their time period read them. And when we do... I think the questions that we start to care about change. That's been my experience, at least. So that's my two cents. Excellent. Brian, right, ask me in five years, I might have a bit of a different answer. Uh, don't, don't we all? <laughs> yeah, um, totally. Man, Tim, thank you. Thank you, yeah, thank you, welcome. thank you. 
uh, to the Vox community, this, the videos, the podcasts, even Tim's old sermons, uh, I've, I've listened to several of them, um, all worth your time. And uh, the Bible Project's a great, great way to engage in some of the Old Testament over, like, so I love the word studies best. Yeah, those are fun. Those, those are, are really fun. super fun. So the, some of the most important words yeah. uh, in uh, the Hebrew scriptures get looked at and pulled forward, and it's it's super fascinating. And, and I'm sure, man, it used to be when, you know, we needed to cheat as uh, preachers, we would, you know, there was this website called Sermon Central like 10 years ago, and it was, you could just copy and paste sermons. Now, I would imagine, instead of looking up commentaries, we can just put on some Bible Project videos, and we got and we got our <laughs> stuff. So, on behalf of all of the preachers who don't have time to study, <laughs> thank you for this stuff. Yeah, um, totally. And, uh, and uh, to the Vox community, again, uh, check Tim out. He's also on Twitter, not a very frequent Tweeter, nah, kind not, of giving it up. Though not shocking, <laughs> yeah, not shockingly. I don't think I don't think anyone who knows you is shocked by that. So anyway, Vox, bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may the Lord shine His face upon you and be gracious to you, and may He lift up His countenance to you, and may He give you peace in these days. Until next time, friends. Thank you. Thank you.